Welcome to episode 360 of the Doctor a Day, a Doctor Who podcast. My name is David, and I'm here with my wife, Peter. Hello. Okay. Here we time, go. Give time, give time, give time. Today we're going to talk about episode one of the Rebus Operation, the first part to the key to time. Okay. The Doctor is in the TARDIS with K9. He's testing out a new dog whistle, silent whistle he's made. He says, oh, it works. And he says, um, we're going on holiday. Um, we're making plans. And he says, oh, you'll like Haligarn 3, K9. Lovely beaches, sunshine all day. And the lights go out. Black in the TARDIS. And then the doors start to open. And there's light from the outside. And it's shown kind of through the rondels and doors open the doctor there's a bright light outside and there are dresses and a voice says um, your presence is required and the doctor's like well I don't well but who are you because like only a guardian would and there's like a peal of kind of a thundery noise outside like oh okay um, I guess so and so he walks out of the TARDIS, and there's a desolate, um, sandy area, kind of a limbo area. There's a big, I forget what those chairs are called, the big rounded back wicker chairs. Um, Adoranda? No, those are the slotted Oh, that's right. Chairs. I think there's a name for them. Anyway, it materializes. It's there, a little table and a drink and a, you know, very tropical beachy scene and an old man in a white suit and white, wearing a white hat appears in the chair and is drinking a cocktail and addresses the doctor and says that he's um, chosen him for a purpose, for a special task. As he heard of the key to time, it's like, oh yes, myths and legends. So it's no myth. Um, there's this device, the key to time, and it was. It consists of six segments, and these segments have been scattered over the universe and hidden. Um, and he says that at times their forces in the universe upset the balance so badly that they have to stop everything to restore the balance or eternal chaos will result so he tells the doctor all this and the doctor um, gets in his head he says oh you want me to volunteer he says precisely he says well what if I don't I'm sure other time lords would be you know happy to, to do this he says I've chosen you he says well nothing will happen to you if you say no ever so he accepts the task and um, he says well how am I supposed to find these he says, you'll be given a locator and an assistant and he says oh an assistant can I just manage with K9 he says no K9's a machine he says your assistant will be waiting for you in the TARDIS and before he goes he tells them that you know, there may be competition in your search. I'm the white guardian. There's also a black guardian. And 
he will want it for an evil purpose. He said, you must prevent that. He says, Dark says, how am I to prevent that? He says, beware, Black Guardian. He says several times before he disappears. So back in the TARDIS, the doctor stands on the floor with K-9 and says, the holiday's off. And we hear, um, I forget what she says, actually, but we hear his assistant say something and he looks up and we see, you know, from the floor up, you know, like from a white shoe all the way up and this long white gown with hair up and um, very elegant time lady. And um, he says, that's the new assistant. And she introduces herself as Romana de Ratnalinda. And the doctor says, I'm sorry, is there anything we can do? Um, they talk about, uh, she says, oh, I'm, I'm here, I'm supposed to give you this. And she hands him this locator, the core to the key to time, which will, um, she explains um, what, uh, what it does. Um, she says something about, uh, he says about she being young and, she says, well, but, you know, I did well at the academy. I got, you know, a triple first. He says, oh, we're supposed to be impressed. And she says, well, it's better than scraping through at 51% on your second attempt. And he gets, takes big affront to that and gets up and walks over to the other side of the, tar of the control panel and says, oh, that president, I should have thrown him to the Santarans while I had the chance, which makes a lot more sense now since I hadn't seen the previous story, even though he was the president at the time, but digress. So um, he asks about how this, this locator works and notices that she's put a hole in his TARDIS console because that's where the, the core locator goes. At first he, he recovers from being stressed that there's a hole made into his TARDIS console and uh, they notice that they're already getting readings. So she says, well, is there anything I can do? He says, well, I'd like you to stay out of my way as much as possible and try to keep out of trouble. I don't suppose you can make tea. All of a sudden, the readings change. And so now they're wondering about this gadget and how it's functioning. He says, oh, it must have moved. So we see the exterior of a very snowy high roof. Um, a young man uh, enters scene followed by a, a very large older man. We learn that they are Unstoff and Garon. They open this heavy hatch and Garon says, oh, as the, the bells ring, he says, oh, that's curfew. Um, drop the meat as soon as the bells stop ringing. Downstairs we see a um, relic room. Uh, I think it's like a, a rounded or octagonal room with a, a large glass uh, display case in the middle. A guard is going around um, since it's curfew, turning the lights out and securing the room. Unstuff drops the meat and we hear a growl from below. He's dropped a rope ladder 
down the hatch. The guards secure the door from the outside and pull a rope that opens a panel in one of the doors in the throne room or in the relic room up a couple feet and we see a green scaly claw kind of reach out and lay with it. So Unstoff climbs down um, the ladder, the rope ladder, past the drugged beast, which is called a Shivenzai. He goes inside the throne room and the relic room, excuse me, um, and has a handy glass cutter and he starts to cut open the one of the panels. Romana is um, teasing the doctor about sulking. He says, you're sulking. He says, well, I'm surprised at someone your age. 759. He says, oh, 756. Again, takes uh, umbrage at being thought of as older. Um, she says, well, I was even willing to be impressed before I met you. And then she starts to like psychoanalyze him and she has spouts so long stories of what she thinks is wrong with him. And she says, well, you're, put it simply, you're suffering from the massive compensation syndrome. And um, the, the readings beep that they've arrived, and, or not that they've arrived, but they, um, they have a new reading. And he knows where it is. And she says, oh, well, maybe take a chance. And he goes, I'll make the decisions. And then he says, oh, so what do we do? We'll take a chance. The um, Unstoff is in the relic room and he has uh, opened the case and he leaves a bright blue stone in the case and then starts to put the glass back. Uh, Garon radio calls in on a little wrist radio they have and says that he hears a, he hears a plane overhead and he says that the Graf Vindicke is arriving, um, his mark, and uh, he needs to go meet them. So he meets this um, official from another planet, this very uh, military man who's there with his head guard and some more uh, of an entourage and says, oh, you're you know, your guard, we, we agreed, ne you know, to, to not have them surround, you know, with you. And so he sends them away. Sh Sherlock is his head guard, and he keeps him with him. But the, it is very, very cold, and he wants to get inside. So they, um, says, oh, right this way, I have accommodations for you. And so they head off right as, uh, as they, they clear the area, the TARDIS materializes. The doctor comes out and says, Oh, it's refreshing. Cool. And Romana says, it's, it's bitter. I'm sorry, Romana did that in Linda. We haven't established a name yet, sorry. Um, the doctor uh, says, gives her several rules to follow. One was, don't ask questions, do as I say, and I think he's getting to rule three, and he says, and your name, it's too long. By the time I've called out Ramana DeVrit, what's your name? And she's, um, you'd be dead. So she's, it's either Ramana or Fred. 
She says, I don't like her, Mama. He says, well, call me Fred. So, of course, he says, come on, Mama. He says, you must expect the unexpected. And then we hear him call out because he has ended up tripping a lever and getting himself caught in a net trap, um, which she blurts about. Garen uh, meets with a Vinder K, the graft, and uh, calls him his highness. Um, tells him of the planet, the Rebels, um, how they have um, sun times and winter times, and they're so remote that the each season they have two seasons in the last half the year each, and um, how it's a one very one large principal city called Shar, and. Um, he says, if you meet anybody, just say, oh, we're from the north. Because it's very uh, unpopulated, uh, remote areas to say they're from the north. Um, Shorlack Castle, surely these people know that they're protected by the Planetary Alliance. He says, oh, they're simple peasants. They don't have any idea about any of that. Um, they start talking about price and uh, bartering and Prince or uh, Graf says, "Oh, it's looking less and less attractive by the minute. Not as much, not worth as much as you're you're wanting." So they talk a little bit about price, and he says, "Well, I'll come collect you in the morning, and you can read over the the papers." So Sherlock and uh, Graf read over some of the documents and find that there is a, a huge constant, or to them it's a large concentration of a mineral called Jethrit. Um, and they're very excited about that. Outside the room, Garon is listening in on his little wrist uh, communicator because he's bugged the room. But he hears someone coming, so he closes his communicator device and um, limps away and in a drawl says, as he passes the doctor and Ramana, four of the clock and all's well. And the doctor says how extraordinary this is. And she says, well, it's just some type of a greeting. And he says, well, he said it in a Somerset accent. It's one of the earth counties. Why would he be on Rebos? He says, oh, maybe she's going on that, oh, there's no earth, no service from Earth to here, and blah, 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 and he's not paying attention. He's saying, oh, maybe he's a cricket scout. And he goes on about being, he could be a good leg spinner. And then they, they go, he, she asks, well, what is that? And he goes, remember, remember rule one. And they head off. So graft wants the Jethric because he says that he could sell it or he could use it to power a battle fleet uh, so that he can amass his forces and retake his homeland. So he is somehow an exiled prince of some kind with his general. Uh, he says, oh, they could even hire mercenaries, but that would be outside of the alliance and they would be in trouble. And he and Sherlock have a bit of word about that. So the doctor and Ramana are following the tracer um, to the locked relic room. Um, the doctor asked her if 
they talk everything about locks at the academy and he goes oh you you like this then and he shows you the sonic screwdriver and he, uh, as he's using it he, he says to her watch out for the sentry he says why she says he says because sleeping on duty is a capital offense and if anyone comes you can wake him up so he opens the door and she is impressed that he's got the, the lock opened like that so they go in and look around the room um, Dr. Uh, Uramana uh, finds that there's something in the case that is setting the core off we hear a, a Geiger countery sound that it makes as she holds it up to the glass so the doctor gets under the cabinet with his screwdriver to uh, work the locks and open that so they can get their segments <clears throat> up on the roof Unstoff comes now that it's morning and there's uh, horns are blowing and there's a guard present who is there to wake and uh, feed the shivens all Unstoff offers them drink and it turns out to be a drug so the guard drops into unconsciousness and Unstoff takes the horn to wake the shivens all and blows it there Vermana is looking around the room as the doctor is still working on the locks and she crawls underneath the doorway and past the still sleeping beast and is looking around as the horn blows and then outside the room guards are coming to unlock the doors and so they start to lower the panel in the door to block the shivens all so they can enter the room as the wall starts coming down Ramana sees this panics and starts to scrabble to try to get underneath the door the doctor comes to help her as he slides under the door to try to help Ramana out the shivens all wakes and we hear it growl and there's a close-up of the doctor being surprised by this beast and the end I think I could have written it all down without watching. I'm sure you could have. But I was getting ahead of myself because I knew what happened and I had to I had to stop and think, oh, wait, he he goes to uh, cut the case open. He doesn't put the, the thing of Jethric in there yet. There's a scene in between that. So, so I went back to watching a little bit so I could have more in sequence. <laughs> hey. Um, I'm just saying you're smiling and shaking your head at me so <laughs> yeah but that's the story of our marriage anyway, not everybody knows that face like I do so <laughs> I just thought I'd describe it um, <laughs> I did stop saying the lines out loud after I heard him when you said we're going to do this for the whole episode <laughs> yeah, I was going to say only after I basically asked you not to I just said them to myself. <laughs> there are just so many funny things that the doctor says and does in this one. That, um, as uh, most of my introduction to the fourth doctor, it was you know that this is where I started. Right. So you can just imagine <laughs> how addicted I was. <laughs> so. Um, 
I suppose we could say a little bit about the fact that the, we talked about this before we got to this part, um, but that the key to time is kind of the first known real overarching storyline with mm-hmm. diff- with these six stories as part of it. Um, and you said the next one really will be Trial of the Time Lord, I think is what we determined. There's kind yeah, of a I mean, it, smaller one. But. Like I said, a case could be made for like the East Space Trilogy. Oh. Or the uh, Keeper of Track and Legopolis duo. Yeah. And even on into uh, the first one of the Fifth Doctor, whose name is escaping me right now. I want to say Castrovalva. Mm-hmm. But really, Trial of a Time Lord is the next really big one, yeah, long, yes. long, epi- long story named named series, stories, really. Yeah. yeah. So this is kind of a new thing, so far, mm-hmm. uh, in our travel through the Time Lord. Um, so that's an interesting thing to start with, anyway. Uh, we learn of the White and Black Guardians in this, and more. Uh, information about uh, Gallifreyan myths and the Gallifreyan structure, I guess. Yeah. You know, above the Time Lords are the Guardians. So, um, I think that visually the, the episode is, um, is pretty nice. There's um, well, there's a kind of C- there's a CSO bit at the beginning with the, the White Guardian in his chair and materializing, which the, his disappearing and disappearing. Actually, we're not. We're pretty good. Pretty good, but also kind of standard or. Um, yeah. I don't know. It's famous. not like it was the first time they had done that particular effect. No, no. Um, so they should be good at it yeah. by now, is my point. The very plain background, which I think was CSO, um, it didn't have the really bad edges. With the Guardian? Uh, yeah. Uh, I Around don't know if it was actually CSO. Mm. It might have been a psychorama. Oh, okay. A Maybe backdrop. that's why it seemed like, it didn't see like a hazy little outline right. of Around the Doctor. As he stood again, mostly against that, um, White Guardian was sitting in his chair, so he was against an actual thing. So that was you couldn't tell there. Um, I think the and then oh, I didn't mention it as I ta- as he talks about the key to time. We see an image of a clear, um, you know, resin cube spinning in the air, superimposed over his image, which is the image of the key to time all put together. And that was pretty good. You know, it, it wasn't spectacular, but it was fine, you know, to have that kind of dual image there. But I think the once they get onto the planet, the, the sets are kind of simple, but um, there's a rough-hewn quality to them that I think you'd expect from this kind of a big city and a mostly peasant-oriented um, uh, planet. Mm-hmm. 
of the underdeveloped planet, which is the point of um, why Garen is, is interested the Gra into in it. Um, but I think that they looked really nice, and they've got their very um, heavy woolen fur. Um, for coats and hats and other, you know, things you'd expect from like a semi-barbarian type culture, actually. Um, the, the guards' uniforms themselves are black cloaks and a um, black um, kind of rounded but comes to a point hat with a big fur brim, kind of very much like a... a what you might expect the, to see on something about Attila the Hun and his warriors, or Genghis Khan's warriors, something like that. But um, much bigger, much, you know, furrier. <laughs> <clears throat> but I think that all really fits well with where they are and what we've learned of the planet. What do you think? I, you know I think a lot about it, so. Uh, let's see. So we get our introduction to Romana. Mm -hmm. And as much as I like Romana, she's kind of hard to take in the early segments. Yeah. The early bits. Yeah. She's really abrasive. Probably overly so. Do you think they wanted that, though? To I do, but that doesn't make it easy to watch. Mm. And to, to make this kind of adversarial relationship, because the doctor didn't want her to be there anyway. Right. So he was already set not to like her. So she's kind of fitting in that, giving him reason not to. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. I wonder... Now that I've, I've seen this, after watching the last story with Rodan, mm -hmm. she kind of strikes me mm. as looking and acting a bit like Rodan. Yeah. The time lady. I can see that. I, that. I don't know that that's intentional. <coughs> Excuse me. You know, well, maybe not. Well, it wasn't a, the same writer. This one's Robert Holmes again. Right. And the other was obviously not, but I don't know who, uh, who that was. I believe it was David Agnew. Oh, Which yeah, is, if I remember correctly, and I'll double check this, I, I believe that was a pseudonym. Pseudo okay. Yeah, for Graham Williams and Anthony Reed. Okay, right. I remember them having information about Graham Williams, but I wasn't sure if he was writer, director, producer, or well, Last Graham Williams was the producer. Okay. Anthony Reed was the script editor. Okay, and and together. It's, and it's BBC policy, at least at the time, that the producer and script editor cannot write scripts for the show. <laughs> or they're not supposed to. It's considered bad form, I guess. Mm -hmm. So they did it under the pseudonym. Mm -hmm. So that, in theory, no one would know. Uh, but she makes me think of Rodan 
as the the time lady from the last one. Yeah. Um, it, it's probably just because I've seen it so much, but the there the banter between them, you know, that starts early, it is, it's kind of funny. Mm-hmm. The doctor does act very childish in their first encounters. Um, and I think he gets past that a little bit. Oh, yeah. You know. But, yeah, some of the things just make me laugh. Well, I think he comes to realize that he can depend on her. Yeah. Even though she's young and all of that. And inexperienced. Or yeah. Whatever. Um, yeah, because he, actually he comments that someone as young and as inexperienced as you. Mm-hmm. And that part gets her to comment about her score at the academy versus his. Right. So, um, but yeah, I think that after this uh, story, you know, they, he does see that, yes, she is intelligent and, uh, you know, they can work together. I think it's a very... kind of a bold idea actually to have another time lord another Gallifreyan as his as his companion mm-hmm. to have someone as I think the note said from them someone who was um, as intelligent as the doctor yeah. who you know someone who's every bit his equal yeah and uh, yeah we get some of that with um, Zoe because she's so intelligent yeah for her for her age and for her time because um, she thinks she's smarter than the doctor uh, so it's not like we haven't had a very bright and intelligent companion before um, but it's the first time we've had another uh, a time lady mm-hmm. so that will be um, fun to to go over and talk about as I watch these with the, the full history of the doctors behind me now, you know. I, I'm noticing it, it's like there's another level of appreciation for me now. Mm-hmm. Having seen from the first doctor on to this point. Yep. Whereas before I just jumped right in like jumping in the deep end. Um, when I first started with this one, with this doctor, so. Um, I don't know if they mentioned it in the, this might scare you, I don't know if they mentioned it in the production notes, but where the doctor is talking to the white guardian, the close-ups of the doctor speaking, you can see there's something on his upper lip. No, he's got a, is that where the dog bit That's, him? He had a dog something bite, like that? yeah. yeah. And so they, they tried to cover as much as they could with makeup. But uh, you can still see it in this uh, story. Anyway. Yeah, I think I had read that somewhere. Yes, I read it in my Doctor Who Appreciation Society stuff. Mm. <laughs> That's the scary part, probably. Not to me. Or, no? Okay. I don't have any of that stuff still. It's too bad. The only thing I have is my Doctor Who mug. Because mm-hmm. I ordered it from 
back pages where I, where you could get stuff. And uh, has the, the diamond-shaped logo that we see in this opening still. And uh, blue on a translucent white. I'm surprised. It's like probably, what is that, 40, no, 30 years old now, I think? Yeah, probably. That's a scary thought right there. So, um, story-wise, I think it's a fairly interesting story so far. Yeah, it's... Uh, the, the, one of the other problems I have with the episode is that all of the characters in it talk like they're in a Shakespearean play. Mm. Well, I shouldn't say all the characters, but Graf, Venda, Kay, and... Um, Sherlock. Yes, his his little assistant guy there. Yeah. They and act like they're in, like they know they're in a Shakespearean play, no less. Yeah, the the actor playing the Graft is very vehement at There's one no part, team. huh? It's just Graf. Graf, okay. Uh, is very vehement when he's talking to Sherlock. I mean, in his. <laughs> the thing that gets me is like his his lips are very wet, so I'm thinking, I wonder how much he spit on anyone. <laughs> he enunciates very well and you know speaks very fast, so you just know that's gonna be just be a natural effect. Mm -hmm. that, that's gonna happen. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he has has that quality, that booming quality to his voice and the the very precise speech. That um, you would get from maybe he he was in the Royal Shakespeare Company or something. Would surprise me. I wasn't sure if they mentioned anything about him yet. But yeah, I've forgotten it. How just uh, how vehement he, his speech is at some points, <coughs> and um, he's not even arguing with anyone yet. He's just you know very excitable about this uh, the situation he's in and the Jethric they may have found and um, talking with his not his general at arms or whatever his position is uh, yeah he's a little over the top um, and uh, but of course I think Garon is just playing along with the the propriety and the um pomp and circumstance that this Graf wants. Probably because he's been denied it and on his home world because mm, he's in exile. Mm -hmm. So he's buttering him up by doing that, I think. But I could easily, very easily see Garon playing like Falstaff in Shakespeare mm. or something like that, you know. Very, you know, big, jovial um, type of gregarious type of person, type of character. Anything else? Mm, I don't think so. Okay.
is an ending of our story. Cliffhanger? Yeah, as I said, I wasn't sure where they were going to stop mm. each uh, each uh, bit for the to make it episode. Yeah. Episode form. Since I know them best as movies. But, uh, I, as we got farther into the episode, oh, I bet they're going to stop there. Or she gets trapped. Or starts to get trapped as they go to lower the panel. Yeah. So. That's practically the only place they could stop it. Mm. And it's unfortunate that we end on the fourth Doctor's version of the googly eyes of the third Doctor. You know, the very surprised face. Well, it's also unfortunate that they have that terrible uh, <laughs> puppet. You can see the zipper. <laughs> Kind of um, beast is what we've got. Yeah. yeah. In fact, I'm surprised it, it it almost looked like the the claw that reached out as the as they're bringing up the door was uh, you could almost see like that where the glove ended on somebody's arm. You know, mm -hmm. you couldn't, but you got that sense that you could. If you could just see a little bit farther, that you'd see where it ended and the arm began <laughs> as it reached out to scrabble. Um, it's really not very effective. <laughs> Shriven's Hall is not very, uh, very scary. No. Um, maybe if you were five, but uh, even then, maybe not. Um, and they've got uh, terrible blood stains on the mouth. And from the meat that it ate to get drugged and <laughs> so not, not very scary not very very good costume um, I don't think we have to see it move too much so that's probably it, a very good thing for it because mm -hmm. if there's a really bad thing about the, the story in the episode it's this unconvincing monster Not a very good watch animal. Hmm. So we're, you know, we're not really very scared that the Doctor and Romana are going to be trapped. I don't think. No. It's just a place to end. If we thought one Time Lord could get out of anything, then certainly two could. Yeah, you would hope so. Or you would wonder why she would, you know, get in there in the first place. Yeah. To be honest, I was a little surprised that how do I put this? That they decided to put her into danger so quickly? Yeah. I know she's young and inexperienced, but still. Yeah. She's she, a time lord. Yeah. She does have a kind of a wide-eyed look about her as she's, you know, in this throne or this uh, relic room. And maybe she's not been on another planet before, you know. Yeah. And it's coming rushing up to overcome her or something. Maybe they thought that putting her in danger would, because the doctor has such animosity to having an assistant, maybe putting her in danger was a good thing to start with. I'm not sure why, but... Because maybe you'd think if you didn't like her like the doctor doesn't oh. seem to, that maybe you'd be rooting for her to actually 
be sure it's all food. Maybe. I don't know. Or if you weren't, that maybe you would care a little more for her and uh, that might, the sense of danger might make you feel better that she had just rescued. Reaching. Yeah. <laughs> Very reaching. <laughs> so not, not effective, just a place to end. A pause. Yeah, that's as good a place as any, I suppose. Yeah. But still, I I think there's interest to know where the story's going, so it's, you know, not bad for a first episode, especially introducing so much. We had uh, the White Guardian introduced, a new, uh, a very new companion. Mm -hmm. um, With the added... The added factor of being part of Gallifrey, part of the Doctor's home, um, and then of course the the story, the overarching story of what they're looking for, and then the um, more immediate story of where they are, and then introducing the, that set of characters too. So it's quite busy for a first episode. Really. Mm-hmm. Joining us on Monday when we will get together again to talk about episode two of the Rebos Operation. And I, I promise not to say, not to chant key to time before everyone. I'm going to hold you to that. Okay. So join us then and thank you for listening.